Discworld, it's Discworld Podcast Analysis, yeah! So I'm Josh. I'm Eden. And we are your Unseen Academicals for today. And we will be looking at 1994's Soul Music, the 16th Discworld novel and the third in the death sequence, uh, where an Unkmorphok is infected with the literal spirit of rock and roll with which death's granddaughter Susan must do battle with while death, amid a crisis of faith, goes on a quest to discover what it's all about, you know, when you really get down to it. And we, I've written we're going to be using this book to explore ideas of music, memory, education, inheritance, Marxism, and cultural materialism. But I think we're just going to stick with the music stuff today because as per usual this has got way out of hand and i think this might be uh the second book that i break up into into three different episodes but today we are just focusing on the music things but before we get into that i should probably introduce our co-host for today eden why don't you tell the listeners who you are hello everyone as previously mentioned my name is eden i am the editor-in-chief for heavy blog is heavy um, which means that i'm a music journalist for the last um, eight years or so i also do multiple other podcasts like Def sentence which is a literary podcast focused on weird fiction and leftist themes i also do anarchy sf which is another podcast focused on literature and um, leftist themes but mostly on science fiction and um, anarchist ideology i'm from israel all the way in the Middle East. Also, I'm a huge Terry Pratchett fan. I have recently cut down on my library uh, like a couple of years ago, but I used to have 35 or 36 of the Discworld novels um, and I've read more. Those are just the ones that I had physically. Can I choose my favorite one? You may. You talk about Pratchett as much as you want. Uh, so I have two favorites and they're uh, Small Gods and Thief of Time. Which are also my favorites, as, as I mentioned on the first episode. Yeah, they're just brilliant books. I I like, I think Pratchett is at his best when he's doing two things. One, building out the mythology of this world and, and the fantastical elements of it. And two, being weird and like non-traditional. Soul music is not one of the weird books, but it's I think it's a good book. But Small Gods, I think, is one of the weirdest Terry Pratchett books. And Thief of Time is one of his most just conceptually very interesting and, and, and intriguing. But I've yet to read like a Terry Pratchett book that I've disliked. Right, that was going to be my follow-up question is what are your least favorite <laughs> Terry Pratchett's because there's a few that I really don't care for it's a, it's a problem with me because I like them all even like the first one which people seem to not like I think the second one is actually more disliked but I, I, I love them Guards Guards is supposed to be this like hallmark of Terry Pratchett's career but I think it's just an okay book mm-hmm. it's not terrible but it's not one of the greatest ones and people keep bringing up it's like you know start here or something and I, I just disagree I'm sure there are Oh, there's so many books. I'm sure there's like some that I read and didn't leave a mark on me, but uh... no, that, that is true. Even a, a bad Pratchett is usually better than like a bad other book. Um, I think, yes. yeah, the, the two real exceptions from the Discworld uh, series for me are, are Snuff. I, that's my least favorite. I do not care for Snuff uh, for reasons mm. I will get to in about four years when I get through the, the watch sequence. <laughs> but uh, relevant here, the, the, my least favorite Discworld novel before that one came out, because that's a later one, was, was Moving Pictures, which I bring mm. up because it is very similar to soul music yes in concept if perhaps not execution yes the, the connection is that I, I too write for heavy blog is heavy so that is how i know eden although this is the first time we've ever actually spoke or looked at each other Spoken, so yeah <laughs> nice to meet you. So yeah, you can you can read our uh, music writing there. You also have an academic background of some sorts, yes? 
Yes, I have a BA in history and philosophy from Tel Aviv University, wherein I focused mostly on early modern Europe in my history part of things. Um, and in philosophy, I focused mostly on postmodernism, literary critique, and also Christian philosophy. That was just one of my interests that I expanded on during my uh, my degree. And I haven't really stopped reading and, and doing my own like slow and limited research. Um, and mostly in early modern Europe, I, relevant to Discord, by the way, I, I try to read up on and understand um, the use of urban space. Um, so cities, the, the politics, control over space and time and stuff like that. Pratchett fits in perfectly into those. Um, and, and you've given talks on those at conventions and things that are on YouTube. And Yeah, so mostly when I talk about stuff, I get invited to talk about science fiction yep. and fantasy. Um, I've spoken at the Republica conference, which is a big digital culture conference in Berlin. I've spoken there a few times um, about all sorts of stuff, but also the radical potential of uh, science fiction and digital loneliness and uh, stuff like that. Also, I talked about metal, by the way, and, <laughs> and the metals version of climate change and the time, the post-apocalyptic uh, aesthetic. I've spoken about data visualization in a few conferences and their relationship with science fiction. I gave my favorite talk that I ever gave is about data visualization in Star Trek, like how the maps and charts and stuff like that kind of like interact with the show's politics. Right. Um, I, I have a 4,000 word draft analyzing Gojira's engagement with, with climate politics and climate apocalypse and everything that <laughs> I intended to be a the first in like a whole series of going through like to cattle decapitation and everything. But I wrote the Gojira on and then they announced the new album. So I was like, damn it, I have to wait. And then I didn't <laughs> come back to it. So that's been sitting there for a year. Um, so at some point there will be a deep dive series on on um, climate change politics and, and metal. And as some shameless self-promotion, I also have recently published an article on Star Trek um, in the most recent issue of the Science Fiction Studies Journal, which is all about food futures. It's a special issue. Uh, yes, there is a article in there by me on um, is it synthetic food and, and animal ethics and things. So if you like awesome. Pratchett and you like Star Trek, Eden and I have bounties for you. <laughs> all right. Why don't we talk about soul music then? Yes. So before we do that, Eden, I need to know, no, are you ready, ready to rock? rock? Yes, I am. <laughs> so normally in honor of the rupaul's drag race recap podcast i ask my guest or co-host to please name two things that you liked about the book and one thing you did not i'll start from the one thing i did not like okay just to get the bad stuff out of the way i think my opinion is also shared across the pratchett fandom but i think susan's storyline is not good. There's a problem, right? Because I know what Susan becomes and she becomes a fantastic character and a very funny one. But here she's like really lacks focus and she spends basically the entire book just being chased by events, basically. Mm -hmm. She has very little agency, like stuff happens to her. She's kind of led by the nose all, uh, constantly. I get it as a, as a literary device. She's not the narrator, but she's like the observer of, of the storyline. But it's just not interesting um, because she lacks agency and, and like a uh, an actual personality. She's just like a cardboard cutout for Pratchett to move the plot along and have an observer there. In contrast to the stuff that I do like, I think that Death's storyline is probably one of the funniest things that Terry Pratchett <laughs> has ever written across his career. Like, I think the scene in the Clatchian Foreign Legion is perhaps the funniest two pages that Terry Pratchett <laughs> has ever written. The soldier not remembering what he's doing there and what, what's he called and his rank and all that stuff. And in contrast, like Death's, you know, dry, completely lacking metaphor and 
and irony kind of understanding of the world is just hilarious. Just incredible stuff. In general, all of like Death's stops and like interrogations and in his journey to reconcile the death of Mort and his his uh, daughter. What's her name? Uh, Isabel. Isabel. It's just incredible. Just an incredible storyline and one of my favorite things from the book as well. Um, the second one is um, the librarian uh, keyboardist uh, line. <laughs> Uh, librarian the librarian is one of my favorite characters in Pratchett's uh, universe and um, I think the scene where he's playing the university organ for the first time and the way that Pratchett like describes the machine and, and the resulting noise and the entire scene after that with Ritkoli and the Dean and it's just prime prime wizards right by the way Wild Small Gods and um, Fifth of Time are my favorite Rinswind is my favorite Discworld character oh, okay. I adore Rinswind and I think The Last Continent is incredibly underrated might be funny as an Australian I don't know I adore that book and I think it's criminally underrated so whenever there's not Rinswind I'm like the Rinswind should have been there it would have been better so it's a prime wizard's uh, storyline except for there's no Rinswind um, the Rinswind the wizard books are probably my least favorite of the you know subsequences which I think is a, a fairly common um, opinion yes but uh, the the last continent was my least favorite of those for a long time and then yeah in preparation for this I went back through the whole series within the last year or so and it is now by far my favorite of the the wizard sequence just my opinions completely flipped on it it's the most inventive of them all like it's yeah very inventive and and very funny and yeah i know that people really dislike rinswind but i i adore him um no i don't dislike him it's just that those books overall i think are a bit weaker yeah yeah so i guess now coming back to the things i liked and disliked about uh soul music they actually relate very closely to the things you listed because um oh well, i have one thing i like and two things that i disliked which is not to say I dislike this book overall, just there were, you know, things that jumped out specifically that I could name. Um, so I will start with the one thing that I liked because the one thing I like that I've written down here is the Clatchen Foreign Legion scene. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think it's the the funniest passage of Pratchett and um, we're going to talk a lot about like the quality of, of things being in, in audio. Yeah, I'm listening to these as audio books and the the reading of that by, um, who's it, Nigel Planer is the, the ones I listen to. So mm-hmm. Neil from The Young Ones. Him reading that and the timing on that whole scene, I think makes it even better. One of the things I don't like is sort of the humor is a bit weak. Otherwise, yeah. the references to music, there's no real substance to them or comment. It's just like, hey, here's this band or here's, here's this song. And there's, it's like laughter by recognition rather than there yeah. being a joke there so in the middle of that to have this amazing clatchin foreign legion scene it stands out quite a lot i think and i agree that the death story is very strong although i do dislike that he sort of reuses the going to the bar from mort that happens twice yeah. in mort where death goes to the bar then mort goes to the bar and now death's going back to the bar it's sort of a scene he can't get away from is is death getting drunk i guess the the things i dislike are much uh, much the same because yeah I've, I've got the the weak musical references but just the humor in general like i can't stand music with rocks in as a phrase <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't come up with anything better than that <laughs> or even just calling it rock music I don't know music with rocks in they repeat it over and over again like it's this aha get it and it's not yeah. saying anything it's just rearranging rather than rock music it's music with rocks I don't know so that and and sort of the the running thing about him looking elvish and things like that I don't think they're as funny as uh, Pratchett seems to think they are Yeah. Uh, but that is not to say I do not like this book as we'll get into with our discussion of its uh, critical reception so on the, on the, all the previous episodes i've been using um um andrew m butler's uh pocket guide to uh projects works are you familiar with this book mm-hmm. at all yes 
so he gives out of five star ratings for all the books and soul music he gives a two out of five that's a bit harsh i think so um though i do agree with his assessment saying that the book is rather straining too much for the pun or illusion yeah i was gonna mention the puns the puns are like really bad The elvish thing. Yeah, the Buddy yeah. Holly and Cliff and all that stuff. It's like you need to run the, the gamut. The, the, the skill of puns is like either you make them so on the nose that it's very clear that you're like winking at the audience, right? Or you make them really subtle and you force people to like solve these literary puzzles that become their own joy. But this kind of like falls in, in the middle. Yeah. Except for Buddy Holly, it's not like clear enough what you're going for to to be like a slapstick thing, mm-hmm. but it's not not subtle in any way for us to enjoy like unraveling it. Maybe it was before Google. <laughs> Well, it's not before Pratchett and his fans are using Google or search engines. Like he, he is on the internet talking to people at this point. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but like today, it's so trivial, right? Like you could just find out all the references and they're not like interesting or clever in any way. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. I actually, I think the the Buddy Holly joke is very clever, but then loses all its meaning when he then explains it. But as you're saying, maybe that was necessary yeah. in 1994. But I don't think that two out of five is fair. I would give it a three. Yeah, well, three out of five ain't bad. Yeah. I think three, three out of five is... Is, is pretty fair and I think that's where a lot of people would rate it I, I've had yeah a bit of a mixed yeah experience with it because I really liked it when I first read it and then I didn't like it and then I read it again and I did like it it's been sort of up and down and and sort of its connection to music and stuff seems to suggest that it should be one that I connect to but I don't because of that sort of surface level engagement with it upon rereading and doing the um, the research on, on Morton Reaperman though I actually think I might prefer this book to both of those and, and I understand why they are more revered but if as, as I've discussed on that in the previous episodes if Mort is revered for its tight plotting but its thematics are, are a bit thin and then Reaper Man is sort of the opposite where the story doesn't really make sense and the parts don't line up but it's doing this big metaphysical engagement that, that's really thematically yeah. engaging I think here it maybe doesn't go as far in either direction as those two books alone but is a better amalgamation of the two the plot makes sense and moves along it's not all over the place like in Reaper Man and I think despite the surface level engagement with rock music itself the other themes the the Marxism stuff that we're not going to have time to get into today. I think there's a lot going on there and plus death's, you know, whole soul searching thing. I think Pratchett really manages to meld the two together. So my hypothesis going into Hogfather and then Thief of Time is that perhaps the death books get better as they go. I mean, I prefer Reaper Man to this, but not because I think it's a better book, but just because I would rather, uh, like I said, I like when he adds to the mythology and wrestles with the big picture stuff. So I would prefer for him to shoot high and miss like in Reaper Man, right? Make this grandiose thing which I agree with you doesn't really coalesce into like coherent storyline all that much but has like the death of the universe right and uh, <laughs> all the different kinds of deaths and this struggle for the, the very fabric of Discworldian uh, universe than a small story at the end of the day which takes place almost exclusively inside of Ankh-Morpork also doesn't have a lot of impact on the recurring cast of characters except for Susan but That's again a, 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 a subpar storyline like we don't get more information you know uh, um, uh, Nobby and, and Cole and appear there but their story is not moved along the wizards have like very minimal growth by the way another underrated character the dean I, I like his role in this book because I like the dean and I like what he the rebellious kind of like teenager thing that the dean goes through on this book is I think really funny but it doesn't like I could take I could take um, soul music I could like thief of time 
might go back and uh, make it not exist. And we wouldn't lose any critical information on the Discworld universe, except for Susan. It wouldn't affect the timeline, so to speak. So I, I like my Pratchett books, you know, like to have ramifications on the setting and how it works and magic and stuff like that. So um, I, I, that's why I like Reaper Man a bit better. But yeah, you're right in the sense that Fifth of Time is superior to all of them. So perhaps it, it, <laughs> um, does, it does get better as we go along. Can I push back against that a bit? Yeah, for sure. So on two parts, I, th- I think there's maybe more going on in, in soul music than th- it appears. Like we do have a cosmic threat in that the music is foundational to the universe and is threatening to destroy the world theoretically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you are after that metaphysical threat, it is there, even though it takes place in Ankh-Morpork. But Reaper Man takes part on a farm that no one cares about and Colin and Nobby aren't in it at all. And apart <laughs> from the introduction of the death of rats, I think you could erase the entire story of Reaper Man and not have the cosmology of Discworld change. That could be the case. I mean, I, there's less continuity is what I'm trying to say. Like music, maybe you could make the point that moving pictures is like kind of like soul music's threat reincarnated somehow, but it doesn't, Death of Rats that is introduced in Reaper Man stays with us for the rest of the series, right? Mm-hmm. The music thing just disappears. Imp disappears. Glod disappears. All these characters never make a recurrence, right? That's what I'm saying. It's not linked to the rest of the series as much as the other Death uh, books are. You could say the same thing about Mort, by the way, and that's why I think Mort is also not as good as Reaper Man, because it's kind of self-contained. Mm. It doesn't echo for the other books. The characters don't come back. Again, except for the ones that were already there, like the Wizards and so on. And Susan, but as we said, Susan is a bit less uh, of a place to hang on to because the storyline is kind of weak. Now, to continue the Reaper Man soul music comparison, and a place where soul music is completely superior is the cover art. I think Reaper Man is like a bit before Josh Kirby really like got his art down. The cover is bad. Of Reaper man of Reaper man it's like death looks like a like a doll almost like a, some sort of action figure uh his his like proportions are all messed up it's, it's really bad and um in contrast soul music's cover art looks like it came out of like a 2000 ad like a judge dread novel um, or like a heavy metal magazine it looks really good and it, as the kids on twitter say it understood the assignment right like it's very <laughs> Very rock and roll, right? It's a fantastic cover. Uh, Josh Kirby is brilliant, but his earlier stuff is a bit, I think, questionable. I'm going to have to disagree again. I think I much prefer the cover out of Reaper Man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. <laughs> I think Reaper Man embodies the the spirit of the book. And I like the tree with all the, um, the hourglass. I've just got them here. I'm looking at them. Uh, the, yeah, hourglasses. Soul music, I think in, yeah, you're saying the model, like the character models maybe look a bit better. But it, it understood the assignment, but it is just the bad out of hell cover with, with death. Yeah, for sure. And my main problem with it is Susan's not on it and she's not on any of the covers. That is messed up. I think she's in the background of um, Thief of Time. She's on like the back cover in, in the background. But yes, it's very strange that she is the protagonist of, I mean, she's a bit of a side character here, but Hogfather and Thief of Time, she's central and she does not appear on any of them. I have not noticed that. That's interesting. Yeah. I have because I go through and I pick bits of the artwork to put as the episode things and I can't get a picture of Susan. That's, yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah. And you've got the, the band with rocks in on the back there. So I think the original pressing of the book was just the white background with death on the motorcycle and then he added the rest yeah. of it in. So I don't know. I, I actually think the artwork's a bit lacking. Okay, fair. Perhaps another reason why I have a bit of a soft spot for uh, soul music, though, is this was actually my my first encounter with Pratchett, Mm. though not through the books. Thief of Time was actually the first full book I read. Someone just gave it to me for Christmas and I read it completely out of sequence. Not that you have to read them in order, but I think Thief of Time is sort of, as you're saying, it's following on from a lot of um, other stuff that's already happened. Yeah. 
So a bit of a weird entry point, but I, I really liked it. And it's one of my favorite ones that has held up on, on revisit. But I'm reading through this book going, there's this girl with this white stripe in her hair and, and the scythe and she's death's granddaughter <laughs> and there's a thing. And I was like, wait, there was a cartoon that used to be on TV when I was very small, but there was death's granddaughter who, yeah, went back in time and and, and things. And I remembered his head being buried in the sand. And, there, and of course, I, I discovered that that was in fact the animated um, adaptation of, of soul music, which as, as we discussed on the Witches episode, is the the second of two animated Discord adaptations, along with Weird Sisters, that were produced in 1996 by the UK production company Cosgrave Hall, uh, who had previously done an animated adaptation of Pratchett's Truckers. Apparently, I think I said in the in the Witches episodes that Weird Sisters was the first of his works to be adapted. But yeah, apparently there was a Truckers cartoon, and Cosgrave Hall were best known before that for producing the children's cartoons Danger Mouse and Count Duckula, which is notable for its theme song, uh, explicitly identifying him as a, a vegetarian vampire, which is an ongoing thing I've been looking for in these books, um, <laughs> saying that he is a, he's a vampire, but he eats broccoli. So more on that when I get around to doing the the bonus vegetarian vampire episode uh, with Sophie. But I think this is, it looks bad. I actually think this is a, a fairly good adaptation, but I think we're going to agree again, because you, you mentioned that you had unfortunately seen this before as well. There's so much potential. I mean, like it has Christopher Lee in it as deaf. I would have given like a limb to see an actually good adaptation with Christopher Lee as deaf. You know, you need his like you know sonorous voice to get the capitals across like the capital letters it's it's a good cast and i think there's a lot of potential here but the animation is bad like the animation itself is so clunky and so just bad it is ugly but i did i did re-watch it going into this and yeah it's not great but i think it does a good job of here is the story of soul music uh which might just be by comparison have you seen the one of weird sisters no i have not um it is unwatchable and what you're, what you're talking <laughs> about the the cast because here in addition to christopher lee's death you also have uh neil morrissey best known as tony from Member having badly um and later probably more famous as the voice of bob the builder but he got his start being um Mort in, in the soul music adaptation. Oh, and I've written, there's a guy named Graham Crowden who played Rid Cully. Now, I don't know who Graham Crowden is, but looking him up, uh, he was apparently played Dr. Smiles in the film with Michael Moorcock's first Jerry Cornelius novel, The Final Program from 1973. And none of those words mean anything to me, but I thought they might mean something to you, which is why I put it in there. I'm a huge Michael Moorcock fan, but I had not seen that adaptation, nor even knew that it existed before I saw it in your notes. He was also in Doctor Who, apparently. Um, he had a few appearances. I, I'm not familiar with this guy. Right. But yeah, the, the, whoever they've got playing the the witches in the Weird Sisters one, like they do the croaky voices and it, it is hard to listen to. Um, it looks even worse and the story is is incomprehensible. So by comparison, the, the soul music one is knocking it out of the park. And I think they were made at the same time. So I don't know if they were just like two different teams and one understood it better or perhaps soul music is a bit more adaptable and it's this more straightforward story. I'm not really sure. I think you've hit the nail on the head though. Like soul music story with all the criticism that I had of it is very well put together. Like the beats are very much, they fall into place and they kind of chase each other and they work really well as, as almost like a storyboard, right? So I, I could see maybe that's the reason that. It's been a while since I read Weird Sisters, so I don't remember how jumbled it is, but it sounds like a less straightforward book. And and it was bad enough actually to condemn um, the soul music adaptation to the, the vault, I guess, because the, the Weird Sisters adaptation was apparently broadcast first in 1997 uh, to terrible reviews and uh, poor viewership, which meant they then shelved 
soul music um, adaptation entirely until about a year later when they uh, broadcast it on the UK's Channel 4 in 1998 at the prestigious time of 2.30 in the morning. So they were really trying to bury the soul music adaptation despite, I think, it being obviously uh, superior. But it, it got down here in Australia somehow and was on at about 4.30 in the <laughs> afternoon um, after I got home from school or whatever. So it got through to me and has obviously had a uh, profound impact on my life. So yeah, let's get into our academic examination of the book itself. And today we are we are focusing on the theme of magical music, uh, which there is a 2003 article uh, called Fantasy Music, Epic Soundtracks, Magical Instruments and Musical Metaphysics by Isabella Van Alfren, which sounds a bit elfish if you ask me, <laughs> which charts how fantastic music is described in literature, film and computer game soundtracks and assesses the role that music plays in fantasy, noting that the notion of music as a magical force appears in folklore and stories going back at least as far as Greek mythology and the myth of Orpheus. So yeah, for people who are unaware, the Orpheus is the original musician and poet in Greek mythology. He's represented as a musician, but he is tied in with, with literature and particularly poetry, because as Adrian Soblowski, 2017 analysis of the theme of music in soul music on the basis of the society of the, of the spectacle that, as you can see, will have inspired my, my Marxist track that I'm going to get onto. He points out that modern literature itself has its origins in epic poetry and oral, oral traditions, which is to sort of say that literature is, is music or was music, right? It comes out of the oral tradition and becomes poetry. I mean, the, the basic story is you, you put it to a rhyme and a meter so that you can remember it when you want to go tell these tales. But yeah, the, the modern Western literary tradition traces back to Homer and Hesiod and all of that, which, yeah, these are metered poems that would have been sung to an extent, right? They, they have a rhythm to them rather than just, just plain prose writing. So the, the idea of music and literature itself is tied up within this Western Greek um, tradition. Yeah, I think those those still authors, especially in the sci-fi and fantasy realms, where you can still kind of see that. Um, the two main examples that I always think about is um, Ursula Le Guin and Roger Zelazny that have like a real musicalness to the writing. Ursula uses poetic structures in her sentences all the time, even when she's writing prose. But Zelazny has this thing with, with rhythm, especially on Isle of the Dead, if you read it. It has this like staccato kind of like rhythmic sense to his prose, which is very interesting. And Zelezny also extensively wrote poetry and about poetry. So it's, it's not like a surprise that that's the way that he wrote. Um, but that's maybe you can see the stitches um, in between the two, uh, the two formula. And also someone who does interesting things with music and prose inside of the fantasy uh, uh, circles is George R. R. Martin, right? In Game of Thrones, there's a lot of music, a lot of songs that kind of speak to the what you mentioned, that the role of music and poetry is to carry knowledge. Um, so one of the main examples and most famous ones is The Reigns of Castamere, which is a poem dictated or written to commemorate a historical event within the setting of uh, Song of Ice and Fire, right? like mm-hmm. the destruction of the lesser houses by the Lannisters. And he uses that poem many times to convey the evilness of the bad faction, right? the evil faction. Although there aren't villains supposedly in Song of Ice and Fire, but the Lannisters are the closest you might get to them. So it's interesting. Yeah, George R. R. Martin, I've read some of his science fiction books, but I haven't read any of the Song of Ice and Fire stuff, but um, like like Tolkien has songs, right? Half of the Lord of the Rings yeah. is, is songs. So there's definitely a tradition there uh, within modern fantasy. For sure. And the only other thing I, I think of at the moment is that I need to read more Zelazny. That is becoming very apparent to me. He's someone that I, I've read Lord of Light and I think a couple of his others, but I'm really not that familiar with him. And it's becoming increasingly obvious that I need to be. One, one of my favorite 
um, authors. And he also, by the way, likes a lot of his characters kind of like echo the Orpheus myth. In contrast, by the way, Pratchett's writing is not musical at all. Right? Like he has no lilt or like poetic vibe to his writing. On, on, on the contrary, like Pratchett is famous for his very, not dry, but like very simple, straightforward. He tells you things, right? His metaphors lie in what he's describing and not in his writing. It doesn't use any like fancy literary devices and stuff like that. And I think if I have read all of Pratchett, but I haven't read soul music, would Pratchett do a good job talking about music? I'd probably say no. <laughs> from his other writing. But then you read soul music and he's very good at talking about music. Like he's very good at relaying what it feels like to listen to a song, why a song works well, the, the sensation, right, of music. He does a fantastic job of it, the vibrations and the, the, the emotional roller coaster that it takes you on and stuff like that. The whole Orpheus uh, story mm-hmm. has several main themes that are usually called out. Of course, the main one and the most famous one is um, how love can hurt us, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's the story goes that he goes into the underworld to rescue his wife. In my favorite version, she's bitten by a snake that was sent by another god, but that's debated in, in all sorts of like versions of the story. And um, he is, he's told to that he can take her, but he's not allowed to look back. Mm-hmm. He would look, look back and again, gaze upon the knowledge of the gods. That's the idea. Like if he looks at the mystery, then she will be taken from him. But he looks back. And if you read the story in a naive form, it's like he's a child, he's immature, he wants to know and so on. But the reading that I prefer is that he just loves her so much that his gaze is drawn to her. Right? Like he gravitates towards her and, and that's why he looks back and loses her. Inside, his love causes him to lose her. Right? It's a very tragic, very poignant sort of story. And I think Pratchett in soul music does a good job of interposing like the Orpheus metaphor onto imp and musicians in general. Like one of the main themes of this book is musicians dying, mm-hmm. right? Like in, in car crashes, in plane accidents. I mean, famously the day the music died, right? The, the plane crashed that killed several prominent musicians. And the idea that you burn out, right? Like you love music so much, you love the fame, you love the crowd, but it burns you out. It eats you from the inside. It possesses you. It's a deal with the devil, which I think is interesting in the context of the Orpheus myth, right? Imp as Orpheus work, but also kind of doesn't. Well, it's because he's in love with like the intangible music. Uh, another way I'd sort of looked at projecting the Orpheus myth onto soul music is like Susan's attraction to him, right? She's just sure. drawn to him for no real reason, which is maybe an excuse for why their relationship is so thinly developed. But yeah, there's something going on there um, no, because no. I think this interpretation of the, whether it's scolding Orpheus or uh, venigrating his love or whatever, uh, depends on which version of the Orpheus myth you read. Yeah. So despite the appeals to Homer and, and Hesiod as uh, this sort of origin of the magical literary, musical literary tradition, uh, Orpheus is not mentioned in, in any of Homer or Hesiod's work that I could find. But one of the, the earliest versions of the myth that's usually referenced comes in Plato's Symposium from around 385 to uh, 70 BCE, uh, wherein Phaedrus explains the, the myth saying that love, who was the first of the gods created after the earth, inspires shame at dishonorable actions and pride in honorable behavior, without which it is not possible either for a state or for an individual to do any noble or great work. And I bring this up because this is the idea of the other that I sort of, I, I did a whole thing about um, Sartre and existentialism as a humanism in relation to 
Reaper Man, the the idea of responsibility. Yeah, you are you are prompted into it by the existence or even potential existence of others. So there's a connection there with the with the metaphysical tract of the Death series. Part of the Orpheus myth is Orpheus's responsibility to Eridice or Eurydice. I always say Eridice because I learned from reading, but Eurydice. <laughs> and and this is the idea that it says in in Phaedrus that only those in love are prepared to die for one another. Since certainly a man in love who deserted his post or threw away his arms would mind less being seen by the whole world than by his beloved, and that sooner than this he would choose to die a thousand deaths. I point that passage out because this is sort of the opposite of Susan, right? She's yeah. drawn to Buddy. She loves him, or we understand that she loves him because that's how books work with male and female protagonists. But um, she lets him die. Right. She tries to resist it, but she sure sees it as necessary. And then the whole, the idea of the book is it's about not looking back, right? Her and death are stunted because they cannot let go of, of Mort and Isabel's death. So yeah, I, I maybe want to go into some of the stuff with Susan and, and grief at some point, but I, I think there's something yeah. here in a connection of needing to let the dead go rather than chasing after them. Yeah, for sure. I think it's interesting that you bring up Plato, like the, the whole idea of, well, the classic pl- platonic love, right? Which is commonly mm-hmm. misquoted and misunderstood. It's interesting um, if, if we look at the Republic as well and the idea of love or passion as basically the fuel that makes the rest of the machine go, right? Like you can have justice and you can have courage and wisdom and all that stuff. But what makes you go is your love of the state or of other individuals um, and so on. And of course, in the symposium and in other places, it can become corrupted, right? It can become too strong or you can love bad subjects. The whole discussion there, right? Like your Tifo's paradox, right? Do the gods love what is right or is what is right loved by the gods Mm -hmm. it's not an accident that it's about love because the question that's actually being asked is can we love bad subjects right like can there be bad subjects of love um, and, and Plato says, yes, of course, you, you can love bad subjects. And that goes back to what you said about Death and Susan. Their love is of something that it's not that they should not love it anymore, but their love is excessive of, of the dead people, right? Of, of those that have gone past. And same thing with Imp. He loves music, but it is hinted that he loves it too much. If you think about Imp at the beginning of the book, he's obsessed with this theoretically pure music. That's what he loves, this perfect music. And then Glod and Cliff, they, they show him like actual existing music. I'd like music as it is actually played. And I think it's hinted that the way the demon gets in, right, is through Imp's desire for a perfect sound, for the mm-hmm. perfect music. His love is twisted. It's excessive. Um, and at the end, he lets go. Right? Like you said, he doesn't look back. He lets go. He embraces. Essentially, he, he thinks he's going to die. Well, right? He literally like he lets go of the guitar. Right. Physically, but also he, as far as he's concerned, he's going to die. And he accepts it. And then, of course, he becomes like he works at a, a fish and chips, right? And Quirm, it's kind of like hinted towards the end. He becomes a mundane person, but that's better. It's better to love like the, the correct mundane things than to be obsessed with some sort of like abstract figure, just like Death and Susan need to let go of Walt and Isabella. That, that are- but of course, this, this is complicated and it's not a one or the other thing in, in literature or in real life. There's the the other um, theme that's sort of running through is that this passion and this love for music is what makes Buddy and the Bands with Roxins music so much better yeah. than the, the soulless music of uh, with supporting acts that they end up becoming known, that they, they, don't, yeah. they don't have the love. That's the tragedy, right? Like you need the love to motivate you, to keep you going, to make you into a good citizen, if we're talking about Plato's Republic, mm-hmm. to make you into a, a, a good person. But there's also a danger in it of temptation and of excess, which is exactly the Orpheus myth. Right? Yeah. That's exactly the crux of the Orpheus myth. It, if it was useless, it would have been easy to discard it. But because it isn't useless, you need it to give yourself uh, motivation, passion, reason to live. That's where the tragedy lies, um, that it's so dangerous at the same time. 
Yes, and this connects to the last passage from Phaedrus that I, I will quote, or the symposium, but Phaedrus is the person saying it. He compares Orpheus unfavorably, uh, unfavorably to a, another character called Alcestis, who gives her life for her husband, and therefore he's returned to her, right? Because she was willing to die for love. Whereas he says, Orpheus was only a liar player, right? That's another connection between Buddy and um, Orpheus. But he was only a liar player and did not dare actually die for the sake of love. And that's why the gods showed him only a phantom of the wife he had come to recover, because they thought he lacked spirit. Yeah, so that's the the idea that you need the love, right? Otherwise, the the gods or the muses or whoever aren't going to inspire you. So the love is a, a necessary but dangerous part of of true art, I guess, in in the Platonic sense. But that that is the the Greek or the Greek versions of of Plato. Interestingly, um, I went to Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable, because that's where Pratchett says he goes to to get all his mythological information in the first instance, and doesn't mention any of these ancient Greek interpretations, even though it it is a Greek myth, (laughs) but instead describes uh, Orpheus as having the ability to move even inanimate things by his music, which is also a power uh, it attributes to the the Norse god Odin. But he does mention it has the, the power to charm Hades, which I thought was interesting, again, in, in connecting to death, right? There is, I think there is some logic to, we've just done these metaphysical books in Ripperman and, and Mort, and then, oh, suddenly we're doing music. But because of the Orpheus myth, there is a connection to the underworld and and the notion of, of death itself. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. But the only like actual extract from any Orpheus myth that is given in Brewer's Dictionary of Fav- Phrase and Fable is actually an extract of uh, John Milton's version of the myth from his 1638 poem, uh, Lycidius. I don't know. Uh, which I bring up because the the previous host was a Milton scholar, so there was a Milton theme running through, so I want to point that out. But also, no one cares about this poem. I don't know why this is the go-to poem that was being quoted there, so I I don't know. But if Pratchett went looking for a source for his obvious myth in Brewer's Phrase and Fable, that is what he would have been met with. Uh, But of course, there are many versions of of the obvious myth in in modern literature as well, which I just want to take a moment to camp out and talk about some of those if, if you don't have anything to add. Uh, one last thing, actually. You mentioned this idea of like love making something real and so on. The idea of illusion and the lie of art is something that runs through Plato's work and also through Orpheus's myth, right? This idea of what's real, what's fake, and what um, part does art take in it? Like famously, Socrates hated poetry because it was a fake art, right? Like creating things that don't mirror anything in actual existence and, and create these inherently inferior versions of, of reality. And I think the book actually, Soul Music, explores it in an interesting way at its end, where death basically holds music hostage, right? Like he uses the guitar, plays an empty note, and then in order to be restarted, they make a deal with music, right? Like Imp will restart it if it promises to um, let him go. So there's kind of like a deal with the devil, but in reverse, the devil is music itself instead of the devil using music. And there's this idea of death being the ultimate reality, the ultimate prosaic reality, where all illusion ends, where all illusion are destroyed and cut out in, in, in favor of dying, which is the final truth, and music as being some sort of illusion of life, of vitality, of movement, of vibration, of rhythm. And I think in, in Orpheus's case as well, the idea of, again, him playing music and charming Hades and, and Cerberus as well, like the guardians of, of death with this fragment of life, right? He brings life into the dead place with his music, because music is sort of like a, a simile or a, even a cynic dog for life, right? It's like life in miniature. Um, and I, I 
really like how Pratchett explores that in the fact that death like appears and the empty note, the notion of an empty note is so interesting as well, like a chord that is not a chord, music that is not music and death is the cessation of music and the cessation of life. So that, that was another like line of thought that I had. Yeah, yeah. there's there's definitely a Faustian track to it um, as well, yeah. which I guess is tied up in, in the Orpheus things. I feel like there's a few weird uh, contradictory things about the way that Pratchett is thinking about music in this book and it has a bit to do, well, a lot to do, I think, with the agency of both the listener and the person creating the music because on one hand there's a lack of agency in many of his characters and how they deal with music like Imp himself is possessed by the guitar mm-hmm. right like the guitar makes its own music a few times although it requires Imp some sort of conduit perhaps but also the people during the shows they go into a trance right they're like hypnotized or possessed or mesmerized in some way by the music so there's a loss of agency there right but on the other hand when he describes how the music infects people especially the librarian and, and the dean and characters like that it makes them want to make music right so it's like not exactly taking away their agency it's just taking over their agency right like it's making them feel good about reproducing music and they do enjoy it like if you think about the scene with the librarian and the organ it ends with him being flown across Ankh-Morpork right by the explosion when Ritkeli fires a crossbow at it and then it describes him as smiling and joyous in the wreckage so he enjoyed it it wasn't that he was possessed and he was made to do something that he didn't like and and the same thing goes for the people like I said that listen to the music right like the fans are they fans or are they being forced to listen to the music do they like what they're listening to do they appreciate it there's the whole scene in the beginning where they play what's that dingy bar called the mended drum right mm-hmm. um, and the people like throw axes at them and, and shoot them with stuff that doesn't happen again right on one hand on the other there's like a possessive quality to it right so while Orpheus is mentioned here I think a more interesting Greek uh, mythology analogy would be the siren song right and like listening to, to the sirens sing and being drawn into the sea which the question there is also is it bad to give in to the song on one hand yes because you die right like you drown but on the other if you read into the homeric descriptions of it and, and other depictions of the sirens it's a blissful death right like you die in this like angelic chorus so there's like a there's like a line here between wanting the thing being possessed by the thing being hypnotized by it being led by it and so on well now i am very much regretting not sending you my three thousand words of scattered notes um, about uh, Marxism and and the capitalist culture industry and the spectacle and all of that because yes in, in this will be the the second part episode which you are welcome to come back for uh, if if you like <laughs> but in there um, Adorno I think it is who comes up with the idea of the um, what's it the the culture industry yeah which is this idea of what you're saying is that there's um, music and art as as a force that inspires people but then gets co opted and used to suppress them but he specifically describes that in terms of of the sirens and and the siren song so i've got a whole bunch of stuff about that to work through i think like i understand why the orpheus comparison is more appealing because it, it's a hero's story right like it's one of the classic hero's journeys by the way if we want to analyze soul music in that lens mm-hmm. of the hero's journey it is quite lacking like it doesn't have all the parts that it's the main thing that it lacks in the context of orpheus is what's called the katabasis which is the going under mm-hmm. um, the hero usually goes underground or under something where the metamorphoses of the crux of the story right the the drama when it it is when the conflict is expelled the the result is kind of like an alchemy right the hero is met, is metamorphosized by that conflict and it's a, a resolution but it usually happens underground like with Orpheus right Orpheus goes into the underworld into Tartarus and there his transformation occurs here there is no such thing and I could rewrite soul music and include like a dingy underground 
basement uh, show, right? And, and do a catabasis. So I think it's kind of a missed opportunity if Pratchett was going for the obvious kind of thing. Is the Mended Drum not the dingy bar that they go to? But it's not a basement. If it's a basement, then done. I take back everything I just said. It is on the cover of The Color of Magic, but uh, on that cover, Two Flower also has four eyes. He literally has four eyes, right? Yes, not, yes. Uh, the that's, that's what I'm saying. That, that cover should not be treated as an accurate representation. Just, I'm pretty sure that's the mended drum on there. It could be. Oh, I see what you're saying. They're, they're, they're going down the stairs. Yeah. So that's an interesting point, actually. Yeah, if the mended drum does include a descent, then and that's exactly where Imp is transformed into Buddy for the the first time yeah then maybe the Orpheus metaphor or um, allegory is is a, is a relevant one because it's exactly the catabasis you go into the dark place and there the transformation occurs so that's interesting even if you want to extract it from like literal interpretations right we obviously have underground as a term in music of there's the uh, mainstream and then the underground and the idea is that they're they're not allowed to legally play music on the streets so they go into the underground the the underworld of this CD bar to play with so I think metaphorically it follows and I, th- I think it's meant to parallel the story of the Beatles, right? That they couldn't get any gigs, so they went to yeah. Germany and played in, and then came back. So I think metaphorically, it's it's engaging with that idea. So while we were speaking, I was reading up on the Mente Drum, and uh-huh. you are 100% correct. You descend downstairs to get into the bar. Oh, well, there we go. Uh, so there you have it. It is a kind of bus, uh, which is uh, interesting. Oh, thanks for following that up. But it's interesting for you saying that, yeah, the, the hero's journey isn't really present in this book, uh, because that's one of the things we focused on in the analysis of Mort saying that he really sticks to uh, the hero's journey in that book. The the other two episodes that I, I want to do about soul music are, yes, one about the Marxist analysis and the cultural materialist analysis of what's going on, but also one that focuses on Susan. So I haven't done it yet, but I am wondering how much of her story is uh, follows the the hero's journey. In in ways it does, right? Like Binky is a classic call to adventure, right? Like a magical animal appears and it kind of coaxes you into the magical uh, rabbit hole, so to speak, that you're going to fall under. Um, but here Binky appears and is the call to adventure and in the beginning Susan refuses it and she's like logic and all that stuff yeah. and education. Terry Pratchett's like Pink Floyd is showing there like education is a, is a bad noun as a bad thing but then that's the problem with, with her storyline she kind of freezes there right she freezes there until the very end where she accepts you know the magical reality mm. of, of, of existence and, and so on and then she returns right? yeah. she returns to where she started and everything is different but the same and she's the only one um, who remembers and so on but maybe that's the problem with her storyline that it just doesn't progress through the steps that we'd expect it to progress yeah, well yeah as I said, I haven't actually gone into the research on on this stuff yet, but uh, as you point out, she goes back to the point where she's done. There's a whole discussion about how time hasn't really moved while she's been away, which is a whole thing about fantasy time and the hero's journey that it has to have happen outside of real time. So that's interesting to me. Uh, and what you're saying about um, Susan, like she starts the hero's journey and then sort of freezes. Yeah. A hypothesis I've had that I haven't tested yet is, like, is this meant to be a subversion of more in that he tried to change the future and everything and was set on saving this guy where Susan's sort of thing is she does accept that Buddy needs to die and doesn't want to happen but understands that she has to do that for things to progress so I'm something I'm going to examine extremely closely and at, at too much length in a future episode is is um, how <laughs> this interacts with the idea of Mort's hero's journey but so a good teaser um, for what's to come there are other versions of the, the Orpheus myth in fantasy uh, so I wanted to talk about some notable ones beginning with Neil Gaiman's Sandman series right obviously yeah. 
Pratchett and Gaiman had a close relationship. So I thought it was interesting that Orpheus ends up playing a, a major role in the Sandman series. Mm-hmm. But his version follows uh, Virgil's version in his agricultural proverb, uh, Georgics. Georgics, yes. Yeah, from 29 BC, uh, wherein Orpheus is motivated by bitter rage rather than love about uh, Eurydice being abducted and chased into the tall grass where she's bitten by a snake. So we have that sort of satanic yeah. uh, Genesis interpretation leaking in here. Virgil writes, heart sick and sore. Orpheus sought consolation on his lyre, which is made out of a hollowed tortoise shell upon which he sang a sorry song of his wife, uh, which I thought was interesting given the the connection to turtles on Discworld. But I, I don't think I'm just being Gnostic here because as we're going to get into soon, uh, there is a connection between Om, right, is, is a musical concept. Yeah. And Om is the turtle in in uh, Small God, so I'm just throwing that out there to keep in mind for later. <laughs> but it is it is interesting to me that in the version in Georgics ends with the with the passage where it tells the whole story of Orpheus, and then the the teller of the story says, "Such was the song that I took on to sing." So in that case, it is literally saying, "This story I am telling you is music." Yeah, I mean the comparison is is very interesting. Right? In, in general, I, I love Neil Gaiman's Sandman. I think one of the most interesting things in the book is the relationship between dream and death, right? And in general, his separation of the concept into two characters, right? Because it's hinted throughout the comics that dream and death are very close. They're not the same person, but they share a lot in common. And all the cliches about, you know, dream and and sleep being kind of like death, right? Like a little death that you practice every day in preparation for the big sleep almost. The whole line with Orpheus and like Gaiman's interpretation really puts an emphasis on, on, like I said, the tragedy and the sadness of the story right and like the sense of loss and kind of ties in with the sense of loss of dream himself right his disavowal by his son and all that stuff and afterwards like Orpheus is kind of like you know he's falling into misery and like wallowing in his own despair and in the end he's I, I really like the, the where he's torn asunder right and he's left as a head uh, because uh, his deal with uh, death and the time that he spent in Hades keeps him keeps him frozen well this is not an episode about Sandman right but this that's a recurring theme in Neil Gaiman's Sandman which kind of t- actually links in with soul music in very interesting ways. The idea that if you keep looking backwards, if you keep being obsessed with what happened, your life will freeze in place. Like you have to move on in order for things to keep going. That's what, that's what the, you know, I'm just, I'm here. I'm doing the same thing. I'm like, yeah, that's the Sandman. That's what the Sandman's about. It's about letting <laughs> yeah, go. Exactly. Right. Okay. That, yeah. That's what Dream does at the end. Dream at the end is like, I keep trying to control these things. I keep trying to make everything work. I keep trying to make everything make sense. But at the end, I need to let go. I need to let go and I need to move on so that things will be better. And that's exactly what happens in soul music, right? That's exactly the same thing. So I'm trying to like figure out the timeline here. Like Orpheus appears in Sandman number 29. He appears in the, the bonus one first in the Song of Orpheus. So it's a non-numbered one probably around the same time. I'm trying to figure out when this was written because this was written before soul music, I think. Anyway, the main the main story of it happens in 1991. Like that's when Gaiman publishes it, which is interesting. Um, it's also interesting because the way death lets go is by releasing Orpheus into death, right? That's that's yeah. the actual incident that enacts. So yeah, a, a lot of crossover there, which is just like a lot of times I, I, I like to accuse Gaiman of being a second rate knockoff of Terry Pratchett, except in this case where he preceded him. But I also just realized they were friends <laughs> who were interested in the same things and they both had ideas about Orpheus and it's more to do with their both dealing with the same source material rather than uh, Gaiman ripped him off or whatever. But um, it does seem like there's a lot of instances, especially with relation to the Sandman, which again is just because it's dealing with mythology, but they they both took an interest in something and then went away and wrote a story about it. By the way, just a side note, reading 
good omens for the first time uh-huh. and seeing that it's the same death because his writing is capitalized it's basically the discworld's death is one of my earliest memories of like literary joy just like the idea that Pratchett was like this character is bigger than my books um, so if I'm writing about death in this collaboration it's the same death was the first time that like it really opened my mind to like the possibilities of crossover and literary crossover it was it was very enjoyable I'm not sure if it's the same death in that it's the same kind of death because his other deaths, like in Reaper Man, also talking capitals like um, Azrael or whatever. But I think he uses the capitals in one of his pre-Discworld books as well. Yeah, but just the idea that that he maintains that literary style because the style, yes, the same, the same frame of reference, the same mm. kind of character. It was the first time as a kid, right, where I saw one book bleeding into another. If we're talking about the Gaiman Pratchett collaborations, then I think uh, and Death, of course. Just a good story. Well, the, the next book I'm going to do after Thief of Time is, is going to be Good Omens um, because, right, it, it has the, what are they called? The, the four horsemen ride the motorcycles, which is what happens in Thief of Time, except Thief right. of Time was written 10 years after. So this is, we have an instance <laughs> where Pratchett is is a shameless imitation of Gaiman again. Uh, so just some other notable versions of Orpheus that I, I wanted to mention. There's the book 10 of Ovid's Metamorphoses, which is sort of the go-to one. Um, most people go to Ovid, but I read that there wasn't really anything relevant. There is also the anonymous uh, narrative poem, Sir Orfeo, which I talked about on the Lords and Ladies episodes for its relation to elves there. But that's also interesting to me in that it's commonly read these days in the form of a 1944 Tolkien translation. Yep. I have it collected with Tolkien's um, translation of uh, The Green Knight. Yeah, that's where it was published. But I think, yeah, the translation itself comes between The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. So foundational to modern fantasy, this this version of the Orpheus story. And it was also, as I've mentioned on previous episode, it was the first text I ever taught in university. So foundational to my academic criticism as well. Yeah. Um, Yes. And and two other more modern uh, versions of the the Orpheus tale that I thought might be particular interest to you and me is uh, Samuel R. Delaney's Einstein Intersection from 1967. Fantastic book. Also one of the weirdest books and that's saying something because Delaney was extremely weird but Einstein intersection is bizarre I think it's one of my favorite Delaney's it was my favorite Delaney until I reread um, Sands in My Pocket or what's that book uh, Stars in My Pocket yeah Stars in My Pocket like Grades of Sand which might be the best science fiction book I don't know it's very good uh, but yeah, so that and it's it's one of the more readable ones. Like it's weird, but it's not it's not Dahlgren, right? You can you can read Einstein yeah. Intersection. It has a story <laughs> that ends. Yeah. And the other one I thought deserves a shout out, uh, although I'm not sure about, is on a list of adaptations of Orpheus. One of them mentioned Jeff Vandermeer's Venice Underground, which I know you're a fan of. Fantastic book and 100 percent an Orpheus retelling myth. Again, goes into the underworld. Also does like Jonah stuff. Jonah is another, by the way, comparison when you talk about Orpheus because he's also like he goes under and so on at, at the bottom of venice and of the underground in venice underground there's a fish the yep. fish eats the main character so there's a whole like jonah kind of thing going on there i i don't know if i picked up on the the orpheus stuff when i read it i think i interpreted it more as a as a dante thing with the like going through the circles and getting deeper and deeper and deeper it's it's all i mean that's vandermeer's kind of thing right like yeah. vandermeer really likes to play with that stuff so but he is chasing his lost sister right into the right into the okay. underground. and he when he finds her she's transformed in all sorts of ways ways by her stay there um, so there is a whole Orphean theme to it yeah I need I don't remember it very well and I need to reread it because now that I'm done with the Stephen King things I want to 
go back and plug my Vandermeer holes, which sounded weird. But I like the <laughs> next thing on my list is the the what's the now I gotta say or- Orbiginus or whatever series. Uh, Ambergus. Ambergus, yeah. that's the one. It is very good and very weird and also has a catabasis and an awesome <laughs> thing in it, by the way. Yeah, well that's uh, that is the next on my list, but I didn't quite get to it uh before this. So yes, if you're interested in other fantasy versions of Orpheus, there are some recommendations. But uh we're music guys. We like death metal. Yeah. Death metal likes mythology and images, which is why I was shocked when I searched through my library of like tens of thousands of songs and albums. I could not find any reference to Orpheus in a song title in my entire so, music library. The only song I can find with Orpheus in the title of note is the Orphan Land, an Israeli power metal progressive metal band. They have a song called Like Orpheus from their 2018 album Unsung Prophets and Dead Messiahs featuring Hansi Kirsch from uh, Blind Guardian. Yeah. Who I did interview once and just wanted to tell me about how he'd started reading the, um, what's the one that's just the big, long, boring incel ripoff of um, Earthsea? Uh, Name of the Wind? Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there is the the Symphony X album Underworld, which is apparently a concept album about Orpheus, yeah. but yeah, it doesn't have a song title with his name in it, along with the new Evergrey album, A Heartless Portrait, The Orphean Testament, which I reviewed on the episode of the review podcast that I put in the feed, so people can go listen to that. And, and a Melbourne band, melodic death metal band, Orpheus Omega, who uh, have support slots at all the shows I want to go to, and it drives me nuts because I don't think they're a very good live band. <laughs> but those are the only references I could find, which I, I was shocked this isn't more of a thing. Yeah, but but you do have some <laughs> stuff on here, which is mostly power metal. Yes. And I think I know why. Orpheus is what's called an ars poetic work. Right? Uh-huh. It, it's a, a work of literature on writing literature or a work of poetry on writing poetry or a, mu- a work of music on writing music. And power metal loves that <laughs> shit. Like singing about bards and musicians and the music itself and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why maybe the Orphean myth is more appealing to bands of that style. Maybe. I don't know. I, I was expecting some kind of death metal band to have mentioned it. I don't know. The Lost Bard kind of idea is more power metal than it is death metal. But right? descending into the underworld and getting ripped apart by the Furies. Like, I, I, yeah, so no, yeah. you're right. You're right. It, it, it does seem like it would be more appealing, not just the story points, but also, as I said, like the metaphor of the like damned musician or whatever. But uh, apparently it's not that appealing. No. All right. Well, then let's look at a, another aspect of... Uh, magical music in soul music. So we talked about it as artistic inspiration. I want to talk about it as on the metaphysical sense of being originary to the entire universe. And this is where I think that that big picture thing you were talking about in Reaper Man creeps in. Yeah. So yeah, the idea of music as a fundamental component of the universe isn't new. Um, and along with some of the religious ideas that I'll get into a second, it, the idea of magical music had previously been depicted in Arthur C. Clarke's 1957 short story, The Ultimate Melody, wherein a scientist searches for the original platonic melody from which all music derives and also Thomas M. Dish's 1979 novel On Wings of Song, uh, wherein the inhabitants of an alien planet are able to float on the waves of their own singing voice. I think they were two that were mentioned in the Van Alfren article I was talking about, but I also took note of them because Clark and Dish are two like specific influences on Pratchett. He talks a lot in his nonfiction collection about how he met these people and they were like his idols when he was first going to cons and thinking about becoming a writer. So it's interesting that they both had, had song stories about magical music in there. I would also add Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern and Crystal Singer series, which Pratchett parodies in The Color of Magic. Like, I think the dragons there are controlled by different magical instruments. That, that is my least favorite science fiction fantasy series of all time, I think. I do not get along with <laughs> McCaffrey at all. I haven't, I've never read it, so. 
it's awful and like shockingly misogynist. The, everyone kept telling me, wait till you get to the white dragon. That's the one, the white dragon. I, I read the white dragon and it's like literally a lady justifying why she deserved to be raped for like 300 pages. I'm like, oh, Jesus. Awesome. Yeah, no, the, the same person was a aunt who gave me uh, Thief of Time the next year, gave me a copy of, um, it was like an omnibus version of the three Crystal Singer books. And I that did not have the same impression on me as, as Thief of Time. <laughs> sat on my shelf for about 20 years and every few years I'd go and try and read it and give up and eventually it got donated to to an op shop so yeah I don't get yeah. along with McCaffrey but a big deal and one which yeah has is parodied in uh, the first Discworld book and there's also the rock and roll song mage Tom John in Alan Dean Foster's Spellsinger series from 1983 uh, who we speculated might have been the inspiration for Tom John in Weird Sisters on that episode so just, just a few precursor magical music books that I thought might have had an influence on Pratchett there there's another book I think is interesting to mention here because it was published one year after um, Soul Music. Uh-huh. which is Ga- Gareth Nix's Sabriel. Right. I, th- I believe it's Garth Nix rather than Gareth. Oh. I know it's Garth because I'm looking at the books on my shelf and they have Garth written on them. Fair. A really, 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 really good YA fantasy novel, one of my favorites, wherein magic is performed, well, necromancy is performed via bells mm-hmm. um, and the music of the bells and its reverberations and, and, and rhythm binding forces either can bind souls and, and so on. So I think it's interesting they were released close to each other and both have music at the base of its magical kind of idea. Yeah, no, very interesting. I didn't realize they were that close because Sabriel is is kind of, and Lorel as well, are kind of like Susan characters, right? Um, they're they're yeah. very similar, which might just be working from the same arch- archetype. And also, we, we mentioned this the other the other day because there is a, a post, cool post-rock album called Aborson, which is the, uh, the, the band yeah. called Aborson, which is the name of the necromancer in this series. So we do have a, a I have a musical representation of this semi-obscure young adult necromancer series, but I have about as many references to that as I do to Orpheus. Very strange. <laughs> and uh, one thing I wanted to mention, to skip a bit in your document, I saw that you were going to mention m- music is like an, an ordering sort of force, like in Pythagoras and um, oh, yep. the idea of the music of the spheres. We can talk um, about that now. Yeah. So I, I wanted to mention that because Nix uses it like that, right? Like music is this fundamental kind of like almost mathematical concept that orders reality. And if you know how to play the correct notes, you tap into some of the, like reality's underlying infrastructure, which I think is a very interesting concept. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not doesn't play a big part in soul music, right? Like this idea of music being well, it is a primal force, right? But it's not a ordered force. It's more chaotic. Yeah, I think it's it's foundational rather than like they don't manipulate it at all to change thing. It just like is ever present. Yeah. Like the, the idea comes from as I said from Pythagoras, right? The idea of the, the connection between music and math. I mean, harmony is just math, right? Like uh, the scale is just math. It's just numbers and and the ratios and stuff like that, which makes music like this very interesting entry point to the idea that the universe is ordered and is playing along some sort of predetermined plan or predetermined set of rules. And when we play music, we kind of tap into that underlying infrastructure. This is like magical music is, is a theme through a lot of the influences for Pratchett, but he goes a step further than a lot of them though, in asserting that his music also has an originary power. Uh, so the passage from soul music reads, one, two, three, four, and the universe came into being. Matter exploded into being, apparently as chaos, but in fact as a chord, the ultimate power chord. Everything all together, streaming out in one huge rush that contained within itself, like reverse fossils, everything that was going to be, and zigzagging through the expanding cloud alive, that first wild live music. In the beginning was the world, right? Yeah. Um, that, I mean, a world is a sound at the end of the day. It's not so 
fall for music. And if you look at, I think, non-Judeo-Christian mythologies, you, you find music playing a part in a lot of them. I'm laying up the Tolkien reference, right? Like the music of Iluvatar and the idea that reality comes to being out of the void from a symphony um, and a choir. By the way, if you go also into the Judeo-Christian tradition, the angels are a choir, the choir of angels. They sing yep. a song venerating God. And that, that song is an inherent part of, of reality. Also in, in other traditions, like Hindu traditions and stuff like that, where song and, and worship are, are closely tied together, this idea that music is somehow primal. Well, you've laid up the the, Tolfer, the Tolkien references, which I'll get to, but you've also laid up the connecting to other traditions because this original power chord um, in, in Hindu mythology is, is known as Om, which some people uh, might recognize not just as one of the worst Soulfly records, uh, also <laughs> the name of the god in um, Terry Pratchett, right? His god is literally the sound that started the world. So there's yeah. a melding of like Om in small gods is representative of the Abrahamic god, but is named after this Hindu idea of creation. So yeah, in, in Hindu and, and Buddhist traditions, Om is the primordial sound that creates the universe and I'll probably talk more about this when I do get to Soul Guards, but it might also be a reference as the L Space commenters explain to the idea of the Christian God being um, omniscient and omnipresent. Mm-hmm. And so, right, it's all encompassing. Um, so, yeah, Pratchett is kind of collapsing those ideas together. Yeah, um, I have like 15 minutes or 20 minutes left. So, all right. Oh, well, there is way more to go. So, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> Tolkien, right? Yeah, Tolkien. Let's talk about Tolkien. We mentioned the creation of, of reality through song. I mean, famously, that's how the Silmarillion starts. By the way, one of the best passages that Tolkien ever wrote, um, those 30-odd pages about Ilovatar kind of conducting the choir and Melkor's evil influence on it. I do have the the passage there about the creation of the world through music. Did you I want to read it? Okay, here we go. Then the voices of the Ainur, like unto harps and loops and pipes and trumpets and viols and organs, and liked unto countless choirs singing with words, began to fashion the theme of Ilovatar to a great music. And the sound arose of endless interchanging melodies woven in harmony that passed beyond hearing into the depths and into the heights and the places of the dwelling of Ilovatar were filled to overflowing and the music and the echo of the music went out into the void and it was not void. But then he does a few interesting things, I feel. This idea that he specifically says that they heard the music, so they know kind of what's about to happen. But there's also like hints and notes and leitmotifs and subtleties that you can't really listen to at once. And so some stuff are still unknown to the Valar, even though the symphony basically tells the story of Arda. The history of Arda is preordained inside of Elevatar's symphony and the symphony that the Valar create with him. But there are so many subtleties and, and complexities to the music that they don't know everything, which I think is a really interesting point. And it kind of talks to the music is an unmediated medium or the least mediated medium that there is, right? When you look at a painting, it is highly mediated through your understanding of the painting, the text that the museum writes about it, the uh, preconceptions that you have about shapes and color and stuff like that. There's something about music that skips through the entire top part of your brain, so to speak, and speaks to the stem, right? Like the lizard brain, the, the stomach. And soul music talks about that as well, right? Like how primal and physical it is. And it's like that in Tolkien as well, both in the creation myth and then after 
afterwards when he talks about music as a source of memory and, and sadness and stuff like that. Kind of like bypasses your conscious mind and speaks to the visceral primal parts of you, which is very interesting. I, I relate to it on a personal level. And it's also interesting on a, on a metaphysical um, level. And Pratchett does it in soul music as well. I'd like music as a spontaneous thing that takes over you, which I, I find uh, very interesting. Uh, yes, I, I think I had more about that later in relation to the, the Pied Piper and things. Ah, but that's an interesting comparison. Also to soul music, right? Like music leading you by the nose. Is there like a, a Pied Piper uh, character in Tolkien's work? Something is like tickling the, the tip of my tongue, but I'm not sure that it's like a bard leading people into catastrophe. I'm not, I'm not really sure, but there is, of course, the Pratchett Amazing Maurice book, which is a parody yeah. of the, the Pied Piper, which the Amazing Maurice gets mentioned as a Pied Piper character in Reaper Man. So he obviously had that on the brain as he was going into writing the next Death Series book. So that that is interesting there. I had a I had a comparison between Tolkien and Lovecraft. Do we want to finish on that? Yeah, sure. So yes, Van Elfren also recognizes Pratchett's soul music. There's an interesting analogy to Tolkien's music of the Enea as described as a primal originary force in the Silmarillion, which you've just talked about. There was a passage in the, the Van Elfren article that I have deleted, so I won't be able to specify it, but they were saying that within this um, musical creation was implied that evil was already part of the world by the yeah. corruption of, of Melkor. And I, I'm not sure where it says, like, this is the creation and, and it's pure, and then it says, like, Melkor, who is the evil spirit in, in Tolkien, sort of corrupts the music rather than being contained within the music. And this was the the entire first episode of this podcast we did the book Unseen Academicals and talked about how orcs are like it's the problem of evil right <laughs> Tolkien is yeah. frequently trying to to solve this problem of evil that God controls everything but he he's good so therefore how do orcs exist well orcs are corruptions but how can you corrupt things I, we did a whole episode about this but my reading of, of the Silmarillion was that it was the same sort of deal that the world was good and then Melkor corrupted rather than good and evil being part of the song I agree 100% but what's interesting is why Melkor does it and Melkor does it because he's pathetic right. he does it because he's like envious and jealous and insecure he's a child basically so like what Tolkien is trying to tell us is that evil results from small minded people getting in the way of mighty works and of beauty and so on which is a very non-Pratchett thing to say I, I think like Pratchett has a lot of empathy for the downtrodden miserable the sad and so on they, they prefigure in a lot of his books I'm thinking of in soul music you have uh, Cut Me On Thought Dibble right? One of the most pathetic characters to ever exist in anything. But at the end, uh, Pratchett vindicates him, right? At the end of this world, not at the end of soul music. Yep. Um, he has like his own story and his own redemption arc and so on. So it's a very non-Pratchett thing to say, like you people who are jealous of others, you're the problem, right? Like you're evil, which is like, I mean, Pratchett and Tolkien are very different, right? Um, but I think Pratchett is most different in the way that he has empathy for all of his characters, whereas Tolkien is very mean to a lot of his, a lot of his characters. Well, another difference between Pratchett and, and and Tolkien is that Tolkien is very religious and Pratchett is very secular. Yes. And I think we see that in the shift to Lovecraft, um, who is another notable influence on Pratchett, who's parodied in, in part of The Color of Magic, but also describes music as an originary force in his 1927 story, The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, wherein the protagonist Randolph Carter observes trembling in way 
waves that golden wisp of nebula made wearily visible, there rose a timid hint of far-off melody, droning in faint chords that our own universe of stars knows not. It was a song, but not the song of any voice. Night and the spheres sang it, and it was old when space and, uh, and the Alathotep and the other gods were born. That is interesting to me. Oh no, I think I've misinterpreted here. What I was going to say was that this says it is part of the same origin as Nalathotep, who's the evil spirit in uh, Lovecraft, and the outer gods. But this is before that, right? But this is before that, which is the same thing Tolkien's saying, that there is the the sound and the cor- corruption. Um, but I think the difference is, and I wish I had the passage from the Silmarillion, and I'll go find it and edit it in, but the idea that Melkor is able to corrupt the good song, yeah. right? Whereas yeah. Nalathotep is irrelevant to the song. The song just is. This yeah. is that secular shift that we see both in society, but fantasy fiction itself, right? And I think Pratchett is playing in the playground of Tolkien with high fantasy characters, but his cosmology is is much closer to Lovecraft. Another reference point to Tolkien and to Lovecraft uh-huh. is um, Hope Mirlis's Lud in the Mist, which is a fairy tale, English fairy tale story from the 1920s. I just did an episode about it on Death Sentence that's going live on Monday. Very interesting book. Neil Gaiman liked it. Okay. Neil Gaiman called it the most unjustly forgotten novel of the 20th century. It is a very interesting book, very weird, has all sorts of class elements, by the way, to it. Um, she was also an interesting character. She was friends with Virginia Woolf and um, Gertrude Stein and other like literary figures from the time, and perhaps a lesbian in a time where it was very unpopular right, and very uh, frowned upon. She spent her entire life with a woman living together and working together and so on. But in Lud in the Mist, which is our best book, I feel, the main character is haunted by the note, capital N, that is played to him by an evil fairy at the beginning of the book when he's a child. And the note haunts him through his entire life because he's afraid of of hearing it. And his triumph becomes when he lets go and understands that the note, discordant as it might be, is also part of nature's music and also fits into the grander theme of things. So again, this theme of discordance, harmony, um, and how it relates to accepting life or being evil and and shunning life and trying to change it to your own uh, desire. And and that ties into the uh, other point I think I was trying to get to about the the shift from talking to Lovecraft is that part of the message of soul music is like we talked about the let it go thing. That is the idea that there there just is death in the world. There there is no answer. There is no responsibility to it. The the song of death, if I want to be a wanker, is is part (laughs) of the fabric of the universe. So I think that might be a good point to leave it. We've brought it all together and I'll go off and record myself doing the rest of it. Thank you very much for your time and coming on. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Bye-bye. Mightier than Este is Niena, sister of the Fianturi. She dwells alone. She is acquainted with grief and mourns for every wound that Arda has suffered in the marring of Melkor. So great was her sorrow as the music unfolded that her song turned into lamentation long before its end, and the sound of mourning was woven into the themes of the world before it began. So that is the passage uh, that I had edited out of my notes that I was talking about at the end there with Eden. And while it doesn't show Melkor affecting the world of Ardor, it's instead um, Nienna, whose sorrow at his corruption of the song uh, is woven into the song itself. But the point is, it says at the end that her song turned to lamentation long before its end and the sound of warning was woven into the themes of the world long before it began. So all of this creation myth stuff in the Silmarillion is happening and gets woven into 
the fabric, the song of the universe. Uh, whereas, yeah, the comparison to Lovecraft is that the song just is, and then later these gods, which Lovecraft's gods aren't necessarily spiritual gods, they're just big incomprehensible aliens, but yeah, they are separate from the songs. So this sort of relates back to what we were talking about with Reaper Man, whether Pratchett's death is part of the universe or is outside of it, whether he is metaphysical or, I was going to say physical, but magical, determined by the belief in things. Tolkien's gods are outside of the world and have influence on its creation, whereas Lovecraft's gods are inside the world and are created by it. Um, there's a reversal in cause and effect there, and therefore the evil that they represent, and even evil might be too strong a word when talking about Lovecraft, but yeah, the bad vibes they're putting out aren't actually anything to do with the world itself. They are just results of these creatures within it. Whereas in Tolkien, Melkor's evil is, is so strong and takes place while the Song of the World is being sung that it is actually woven into the fabric of the world. So somewhat of the answer of evil in Tolkien is that evil is woven into the world. It was a corruption of the song, but it is foundational to the fabric of, of our world at our level of existence. Conversely, in soul music, what we end up with is a third option where music itself seems to be inherently, again, evil might be too strong a word, but nefarious and chaotic, as Eden said, right? It's not positive or wholesome. <laughs> even, but corrupted in, as it is in Tolkien. It's not completely neutral and indifferent um, as it is in Lovecraft. It's we, we, we have a song of the universe that itself is corruptive, right? I don't know if calling it uh, chaotic evil is going too far, but if we were looking at a an alignment chart, uh, Tolkien's music is lawful good that has been influenced by chaotic evil, I guess. Lovecraft's music is true neutral, and, and Pratchett's music is chaotic neutral. I'm also kind of glad that Eden had to finish off, and then now I'm coming back. I'm recording this about a week after the session with Eden, which has given me time since to go away. I said I was going to start reading some Vandermeer stuff, but instead I've decided to uh, plug another one of my uh, fantasy holes, which is a pretty big one. I've started reading The Chronicles of Narnia in preparation for the Hogfather episodes, right? I know there's the reference to Santa Claus giving the... the heroes a sword in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, I'm not sure how much that relates to Hogfather. I guess I'll find out when I reread it and start putting these together. But yeah, just an excuse to go and read The Chronicles of Narnia, which I've read the first two or two and a half um, books uh, a couple of times, and I, I really don't like it. I, I really don't like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe very much at all. So I've never persevered, but now this is an excuse to go back and actually finish off the series. So I've started reading those. And when I say I've read the first two books, I'm referring to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and its prequel, The Magician's Nephew from 1955, which was published in between the last two chronological books of the series. And this was actually the, the first Chronicles of Narnia book that I read. It was given to me by the same aunt who gave me Thief of Time and the Crystal Singer books. I, I don't think she was a fantasy reader herself. She just knew I liked books and would buy me a book on my birthday and Christmas every year. So those were the two books I got a year for a long time while I was growing up. But yeah, The Magician's Nephew, for people who haven't read it, is is a prequel that sort of um, parallels Genesis telling the creation myth of Narnia, but is also a lot more science fictional, right? It sort of has to do with these uh, like quantum pools that they travel through uh, different worlds in. The magicians are more science-like, I guess, and has a bit more of that, yeah, parallel world hopping uh, that I'm sure Pratchett would be into or probably was into. 
I really liked the tone of that one. And then when I got to The Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe, which is a lot more childish and has Santa Claus showing up and giving the heroes a sword, I was pretty disappointed, especially after how much that book had been talked up. But the point is, I have since gone back and reread The Magician's Nephew, which I'm happy to say holds up. But also, you know, yeah, details the creation of Narnia. And the way that works is that Aslan, the lion god, sings Narnia into creation. And there are whole chapters about how he's walking around singing his song and the landscapes are forging and things. And there's a lot of interesting um, animals and, and talking animal stuff, which I guess is all through Narnia as well. So that was interesting to me. But yeah, a, another example, extremely significant, foundational and influential example on the fantasy tradition of music as this originary creative force. Though again, like in Tolkien, we have the god figure in Aslan who exists outside of the world and prior to the song. And I guess mirrors Tolkien um, in having a, I guess, wholly good song that is then corrupted by the evil forces of, of the White Witch. Although in The Magician's Nephew, she is just not a human because that has specific value in, in Narnia, but some kind of humanoid creature from a parallel dimension that the human characters then, through the, the quantum jumping, bring into Narnia. So we actually have an instance there where she doesn't corrupt the song, but she sort of plays the satanic figure who corrupts the people and, and the animals, perhaps, in, in the world of Narnia. But she is like a secular figure, right? She is not only a subject of, of the song and in the physical world rather than the metaphysical world of Narnia, but is from a completely different universe. So whether Aslan is a god who exists for all these universes or he is just the god of Narnia and then maybe there is just god-god above him, sort of like Azrael in Reaper Man, I'm not sure. Maybe that's explained in the rest of the series. But we actually have a secular force in the White Witch, and it's weird to call her secular given that she's a magician from another realm, but a secular force in the White Witch who is able, then able to corrupt, uh, if not Aslan's song, then its subjects. So interesting variations on the theme of originary music. Uh, there through some pretty significant fantasy stories. Uh, so that is to finish up on Originary Music. We actually got through more of what I had planned for this episode with Eden than, than I thought, but we've got a couple of sections left on uh, music's connection to memory and spirituality, so I will get into those now. So yeah, we've established a long tradition of music as an originary and elusive property among many of the foundational writers of modern fantasy and science fiction, but what does this magical music sound like? And the short answer is that no one knows except that it's like nothing else. As Van Alfred notes, the actual sound of music made by magical instruments seems as difficult to produce as it is impossible to describe, remaining mystified and sounding simply like nothing you've ever heard before. And she calls soul music one of the most convincing descriptions of magical music in fantasy literature, since Pratchett does not attempt to describe the music made by Imp's magic guitar, but limits himself to the effects it has, giving only an indication of its genre, which seems to be remarkably oriented in 1960s round-world rock and roll. Um, she also likens its effects to those expressed by the the 15th century Italian philosopher Massilio Ficino, I think is how I'm going to pronounce that, who described the phantasmic mechanism by which music affects the mind of the listener, which he called the spiritus fantasticus, contending that music was nothing less than a soul coming into being through sound. Uh, so this is sort of what Eden was talking about, how music is perhaps less mediated than other forms and requires less reference points to understand. It's sort of hitting you more emotionally. Although, of course, you know, through movements like abstract art, you could argue that, although that often relies on media, but also there is a lot of music criticism, at least popular music criticism and, and marketing. We'll get into more in the, in the next episode when I get into the Marxist stuff. But yes, there is this idea of music as a pure 
force that is a lot more instinctual and emotionally resonant than other art forms. So yeah, in her 2012 book, Gothic Music, The Sounds of the Uncanny, Van Elfren categorizes these effects as one of four dimensions of music in Gothic literature, which she calls liturgical music after the chant, funerary music, and liturgy of religious music. For the record, there is also an avant-garde experimental black metal band um, called Liturgy that sort of seek to create this effect through extreme music. They have a lot of pretentious secondary material essays and statements of intents and exegesis and things that goes along with their music, which I guess maybe puts the lie to or at least challenges uh, this idea of music being intrinsic and unmediated in that this artist that is explicitly trying to tap into that has the most or relies the most on secondary material to get the message across. But as Van Elfren observes, music or a strange sound often sets the transgressions of Gothic literature in motion. Uh, whether or not the listener wants to, they get dragged along into the musical movement from the mundane to the divine or the occult, and also being considered able to evoke ghosts, drive away demons, or exorcise vampires. I haven't come across music being used to banish vampires in the, uh, I think, 60 books and almost 130 films that I've I've watched and uh, surveying so far for all the, these tropes. Yeah, I don't think I've come across uh, music being used to banish them, although there is a terrible 2009 film, Suck, about a vampire rock band, which ends with the head vampire being impaled with an electric guitar. Some of that, oh, actually, I, I tell a lie. I don't know, it's, it's not an effective use, but there is the 1996 uh, Dennis Miller vehicle Bordello of Blood about a, a vampire brothel uh, that has the guy who plays the vampire in Fright Night playing a sort of televangelist priest who is trying to fight Satan through the power of rock and roll. Uh, this movie is more entertaining and better executed than it sounds, um, and I, I find his character particularly entertaining. I can't really remember the uh, specific details of that movie, but I'm pretty sure his uh, rock against Satan powers are shown to be false and ineffective, so we have a, a false example of that, but not an effective one that I can think of. But yeah, Van Alfren also argues that music is intrinsically tied up with time and memory. As she notes, along with melody and harmony, music is defined by the two entwined forces of tempo and rhythm. It is experienced in time, as opposed to visual art like paintings and things where they don't have this temporal dimension. They, they just are, and you look at them and, and that's it. Essentially, you encounter them in an instance. Though, I think maybe she's giving music too much credit given that films, which are an audio visual medium, are also experienced through time and also, also comedy to which the key is often said to be timing, you know, whether through a stand-up spoken form or even in the written form, right? Eden was talking about how Pratchett's writing isn't necessarily musical and I agree with him, but there is still timing to it. He's still using the words to set the pace of his jokes as seen in the um, Clatchy and Legion scene that we were both so fond of. And although words like paintings are static, they don't move, you are interacting with a book through time, right? It takes you time to read it and the words set a pace to it, uh, which again ties into how writing is poetry, perhaps. And, and another temporal device that Pratchett uses in his writing in a particularly comedic capacity and one of his trademarks of his writing uh, is his use of footnotes which specifically interrupt the action they break up the time and, and interject and he's able to use that to deploy jokes in, in certain times or set expectations for the reader uh yeah through temporal manipulation as well as the content itself so either van Elfren's maybe giving music too much of a privileged position or we're just here seeing the connection between music literature and and also comedy. But Van Elfram writes that through its temporal experience, music forms strong associative trails 
of memory, affect, and identification, arguing that all these assessments of musical magic are driven by magic's close relationship with memory, affect, and imagination, which is another theme of soul music, talking about memory here. And Van Elfren says that the simple act of saying this music reminds me of signifies the recognition that listening to music in many ways is an act of fantasizing. Now, I think she's maybe overselling this again, because you could say the same of a painting. This painting reminds me of, or, or this film reminds me of, or this stand-up comedy set reminds me of, right? There's, I don't think music has a monopoly on memory and, and association. I think maybe it feels more magical, I guess, or implicit because of that unmediated, more emotional um, thing that it, it is tapping into. And, and I often associate music with particular memories and things like that. Um, so perhaps it is more so inclined just because of its, yeah, almost subconscious associations, but I don't think this is an exclusive uh, to music sort of phenomenon. But while the, the theme of music is not explicitly intertwined in the text of soul music itself, the inspiration for the memory theme in soul music does seem to be explicitly musical, right? Because Death's problem with grieving for Mort and Isabel is that, but he, the problem there is he can't forget, he can't let it go, right? There's the saying that time heals all wounds, and that is not true for Death, because as he says, he remembers everything. And this is a quote of a meatloaf song, right? And and the influence of meatloaf is made explicit through the cover art that is just a, a parody of the bad out of Hell cover. Um, so on the second Bad Out of Hell album, Bad Out of Hell 2, Back Into Hell, from 1993, so a year before Soul Music comes out, there's a song or, or an interlude track called Wasted Youth, which is spoken by Meatloaf's collaborator, songwriter Jim Steinman, that begins by saying, I remember everything, and goes on to describe the protagonist being corrupted and possessed by this um, uh, guitar. I remember everything! I remember every little thing as if it happened only yesterday. I was barely 17, and I once killed a boy with a Fender guitar. I don't remember if it was a Telecaster or a Stratocaster, but I do remember that it had a heart of chrome and a voice like a horny angel. It required the perfect combination of the right power chords and the precise angle from which to strike. The guitar bled for about a week afterward, but it rung out beautifully. And I was able to play notes that I had never even heard before. Yeah, so pretty explicit influence on... Came out in 1993, so probably, even at Pratchett's pace of writing, may probably a bit too close to the publication of Soul Music to be a direct influence, or it would be, except that the monologue was also recorded by Steinman on his 1981 solo album Bad for Good, uh, where it was called Love, Death, and an American Guitar, um, and then was re-recorded for the Meatloaf album with the additional sound effects and things. Um, and according to the annotated Pratchett file on soul music, Pratchett has confirmed that Death's quote, and, and I would then extrapolate perhaps the <laughs> plot and major themes of soul music, were based off Steinman's version of the monologue. Which, again, sort of seems unlikely that, you know, someone would know this monologue from an obscure Jim Steinman album rather than the multi-platinum selling Meatloaf album that came out around the time he was writing this. But as recorded in his essay, Straight to the Heart via the Groin, where he talks about uh, having heart surgery, when the operator asked if he wanted to have any music being played during the operation, he specifically asked for him to put on some Jim Steinman rather than Meatloaf, although the operator only had a copy of That Out of Hell, so they put that on instead. So yeah. I don't have too much to say about the idea of memory itself, other than throwing out those 
speculations and associations that I mentioned before. But I guess the point I can make about this is that theme is intrinsically tied up with music and popular music itself. So building on this idea of music as a unmediated sort of emotional spiritual force, Van Elfren also likens Pratchett's conception of magical music in soul music to that of the 20th century composer Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, who argued that music's vibrations move and feed the soul, enabling the listeners to feel wonderfully alive, full of energy, elevated and divine, and that the enchantment it brings forth is the result of the metaphysical connection with human soul, transcendental time, and even with creation, which has been attributed to music throughout history. We've sort of talked about this in reference to, to fantasy and things earlier in the episode, but what's interesting to me is that the example of Alfred uses to illustrate this connection actually comes from Dracula. Uh, she refers to the musical laughter of Dracula's brides, which, you know, first tempt Jonathan Harker when he goes to the castle at the start of the book. And Stoker writes that the brides whispered together and then they all three laughed, such a silvery musical laugh, but as heard as though the sound never could have come through the softness of human lips. It was like the intolerable tingling sweetness of water glasses when played, when played on by a cunning hand. I don't know if this is quite magical music, but we do have a explicit description of what the voices of Dracula's Bride sound like, right? They sound like they sound like water glasses being being played. It's also interesting to me here that, that we have this idea of the bride's songs never being able to come through the softness of human lips, right? Which isn't saying they, they bypass the lips. This is more of a Lovecraftian thing, although this is pre-Lovecraft, saying that the experience that was happening sort of contradicted the physical mechanics of what going on. The sounds they were making didn't seem like they could come from human lips, which isn't to say they're bypassing the lips is to say that the brides aren't human. They have they have different lips, inhuman lips. Uh, but this still, to me, reminds me of, yeah, pr- one of the characteristics of Pratchett's death um, is that his trademark voice bypasses the ears and like appears in the head of the listener, right? So Death's voice is not musical or it's not physically musical, right? You could perhaps say that music only exists in the mind of the listener, right? If the tree falls in the forest, is there a sound? If Death's voice bypasses the ears and just goes straight into the head of the listener and it's just mental synapses, is there music? Is there a sound or is there just the voice? So yeah, whether Death actually makes a sound is debatable in, in soul music. But as Van Elfren notes, fantasy also has a penchant for magical instruments which enchant listeners just like Orpheus's lyre did. And maybe I should have had this earlier when we were talking about the Orpheus stuff, because Eden already brought up some of this, including the famous fairy tale variation of the Pied Piper. This is the original fairy tale, but this has also been iterated on in famous fantasy versions such as Mozart's 1791 opera The Magic Flute, and also Charlie Meable's first novel, King Rat, which has the Pied Piper playing techno music um, in underground clubs. I, I don't remember that one too well, but I think it was a, a middling uh, Meable novel at best. And also, yes, of course, Pratchett's Amazing Maurice, which we talked about earlier. I was also I was wondering about what Eden was saying about there being a Pied Piper figure in The Lord of the Rings. I don't know The Lord of the Rings and Tolkien as well as Eden does, but I wondered if maybe the analogy there is Boromir, right, who betrays the, the Fellowship at the end of the first book. Uh, but he his trademark thing is he has the instrument of, of the horn that he blows, um, and he leads them into ambush 
or away from ambush by using his horn. So perhaps that is the analogy there. Another supposedly striking example of the Pied Piper variation of magical music that Van Alfred points to in their article is Lloyd Alexander's Book of Three, which is the first book in the Chronicles of Pyrdain, in which the bard uh, Flude de Flamme's magic harp produces gentle melodies all on its own and awakens a sweet melancholy in all those who listen to it. Uh, so yes, this book is the basis for Disney's 1985 film The Black Cauldron, which is named after the second book in the series, and the trilogy is also an example of a high fantasy Bill Dogsman, so just a, another precursor that Pratchett is engaging with here through his parody and interpretation of magical music. And Van Alfren also likens soul music to Lovecraft's 1992 story The Music of Eric Zahn, which is about a musician who has a, it's like a possessed violin, I think. But yeah, Van Alfren says that like Buddy, the musician in this story has little influence on the melodies played by his instrument, and he also becomes possessed by that music. But unlike Buddy, who wants to melt away into the sweet harmonic world his instrument creates, Eric Zahn is terrified of his viol and the powers of the music it plays. So yeah, that, that is something that sort of sets Buddy and Pratchett's rendition of magical music apart, is that once it is revealed to be a corrupting force, Buddy's not really fighting it. He he wants to join it. So this again sort of relates to the elfin glamour, that he is being possessed, but also enticed. And I think this was what Eden was getting at, in that your, your agency is not being possessed, it is just being overwhelmed your desires are being changed, even if the actions aren't necessarily directed by the corrupting force. And I'll be interested to see how this stacks up against Pratchett's uh, engagement with films and fame in moving pictures, because I think there it is more of a possessive, nefarious force. But yeah, the, the spiritual dimension of soul music is perhaps unsurprising given Pratchett's own spiritual relationship with music in the real world. Um, in his 2008 essay, The God Moment, he describes the first time he heard the music of the 16th century composer Thomas Tellus as a religious experience. And as I discussed in the Rupert episodes, he also repeatedly expressed a desire to be listening to Thomas Tellus on his iPod while dying. So in this essay, he attributes a godlike voice that supposedly spoke to him and, and reassured him that everything was going to be okay uh, while he was waiting to talk about his Alzheimer's diagnosis on a talk show. Yeah, so in this essay, in an attempt to explain that, he attributes the voice to the part of all of us that, in his case, caused him to stand in awe the first time he heard Talus's spem in Elium and the elation he felt on a walk one day when the light of the setting sun turned a ploughed field into shocking pink. So here he's sort of explaining away any religious interpretation of his experience as just the magic of the mundane, right? But here again, this semi-spiritual quality is also connected with memory, with Pratchett concluding that more accurately, it was the memory of a voice in his head, possibly his father's, that told him that everything was okay and things were happening as they should. So I get, he's contesting that he cr sort of created this spiritual experience or this spiritual experience was created in him by tapping into his memory and that it is the same sort of sensation he felt when listening to uh, Talis's music. Uh, mention of Talus was curiously absent from Pratchett's list of his favourite songs uh, that he gave during his 1997 appearance on the BBC4 radio program Desert Island Discs, which asked guests to select six songs to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. I mean, perhaps he only encountered Talus later, right? That's easily explained. Uh, though it does point out that, yeah, maybe Talus 
and this sort of spiritual interpretation of music wasn't an influence on soul music, right? This interview has been given in 1997, so this is a few years after, but he's still probably referring to the kinds of things he had been listening to in the mid-90s. Uh, nevertheless, Pratchett described Mozart's Arietta Voce Sapote, and I'm sure I've said that horribly, uh, but he refers to that piece from Mozart's 1786 opera, The Marriage of Figaro, in similar terms, saying, I just burst out laughing when I first heard it. It just sounded so right. I have no musical vocabulary to describe why I like things. It's just you get that white hot line searing across your brain and you know you are listening to genius. This is that unmediated experience we were talking about. Uh, Pratchett's other picks during that interview included Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell, which provides the cover and through Starman, perhaps the thematical inspiration for soul music. Uh, Summer from the Italian composer Vivaldi's Four Seasons Concerto from, I think, around 1718. Pratchett also chose Great Southern Land by the Australian rock band Icehouse to represent his love of Australia uh, that he talked about in that interview, uh, and yet, yeah, which we'll get back to when we get to The Last Continent. And his last pick was Bernard Miles' Race for the Reginald Stakes. Uh, which is a <laughs> version of Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries with horse racing commentary put over the top of it, uh, which Pratchett calls one of the ancestors of Discworld. So a somewhat musical, uh, comedic influence on uh, Discworld itself there, perhaps an, an originary musical force if you want to be uh, really loose about it. And his favourite song of the bunch was British folk rock band Steel Ice Band's version of Thomas the Rhymer. Uh, this is the story about the boy who gets taken away by the Elf Queen that we talked about in uh, the Lords and Ladies episodes, and we'll talk about a lot more, I'm sure, when we get to the We Free Men. Uh, the book he chose to take with him to the desert island was an imaginary book called Edible Plants of the South Seas. So, could possibly retrieve that through Elspace, although he could also then use Elspace to escape the island, although he might not want to, given that for his one luxury item that guests get to choose on the program, he chose the entire Chrysler building, which he admits is somewhat cheating. So that brings me to the end of the first part on Soul Music. On, As I said, I think this is going to be another three-part episode first one having been on Witches Abroad, which is also the third in the Witches series. Uh, so whether there's something about third books or this is just a product of the books getting longer as they go. But yeah, for a book that sort of has a reputation as a funny but fairly surface level engagement with rock music, I, I have found that there is a surprising amount of depth to soul music. Right, We talked about Orpheus a lot more than I thought we were going to during this uh, episode. And I think other than just references... I think there is a real engagement, whether that is deliberate or just a product of, of Pratchett's reading of everything, but with the Orpheus myth and some of the things it entails. So yes, this was the, the first part on magical music. The second part uh, will be on a Marxist or cultural materialist um, analysis of uh, some elements of the plot to do with the Musicians Guild and things. I'm going to see if I could get Eden back for uh, that episode, because that's the kind of thing I think he thinks and talks about, and, and I'd be interested to hear what he says. And then, yeah, a, a final third part looking at Susan's plot, which will provide a nice lead-in, I think, to Hogfather, where she plays a more prominent and an active role. So those will come out as I go. I mean, I've got most of those written, but I've also started a new job, and it takes time and energy to <laughs> record and edit these. But yeah, I'm excited to get into it, and I'm surprised at just how much I was able to get out of soul music when looked into it a, a bit deeper so yeah thanks for listening and thanks again to 
Aiden for coming on here. I think he had a lot of interesting things to say. And yeah, I'll try and get him back for the next part if he's interested. But for now, I will let one Stanley Bert Ison sum up everything uh, we've been through today.